unchangeable power and eternal light. Look favorably upon thy whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. And by the tranquil operation of thy perpetual providence, carry out the work of man's salvation. That things which were cast down may be raised up, and that all things may return into unity through him by whom all things were made, even thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I am delighted to see so many people out on a rainy day like today. I had second thoughts about whether I was going to show up, so I'm really happy that you did. But it's certainly worth coming out to study Paul's epistle to the Romans. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Romans chapter 3. One of the things you'll notice as we work our way through this first part of Romans is that there's not a whole lot of good news here. Um, and it, it is pretty heavy slogging. There's no other way of looking at this. It is a depressing picture that the Apostle Paul paints here in the opening verses and chapters of this epistle, which is surprising to some people because they expect the epistle to the Romans, which is regarded as Paul's magnum opus, his greatest work, to be filled with good news. And indeed it is, but Paul is absolutely convinced that you can never appreciate the good news until you first have the bad news. You can't appreciate the value of a Savior until you recognize that you're under threat. So uh, he's going to get to the good news, and when he gets to it, it is going to be absolutely glorious. But we're not there yet. So just bear that in mind. So we're going to pick up today, Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. And here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. For as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now that's a cheery thought as we begin our study. But that is a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? Especially those opening verses which set the stage for everything that follows. Paul says, there is no one righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No one righteous, no one understands, and to make matters worse, no one seeks for God. Paul introduces us here in Romans chapter 3 to a very important theological concept, the bondage of the will. The bondage of the will. It raises the question... Why doesn't anyone 
see God. Now Paul is making a statement of fact there. He says there's no one righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. But that raises the second question. Why? Do they not seek God? Again, it's a statement of fact. Paul is saying that's just the way it is. There isn't anybody that seeks God. But the question is, why do they not seek God? Is it because they refuse to seek God, or is it because they are incapable of seeking God? That's the question. In other words, if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, there's going to be the Super Bowl this year, it's going to be in Denver, and I've got two tickets, and you can have them. And, and you just got to get there. The Super Bowl's only um, 24 hours away. Something's come up. I, I can't use the tickets, but you can take them and you can go. And I don't go. Now, I don't go for one of two reasons. Either one, I don't go because I'm not really interested in the Super Bowl. <laughs> There's some other things that I would like to do. I'm not really interested. If I were Brian McGreevy and I heard that C.S. Lewis was going, there was going to be a conference on C.S. Lewis, you, know, you have the tickets to the Super Bowl, I'm going to hear about C.S. Lewis. I may not go because there's something else that I want to do. I'm simply not interested. That, in that case, what? I've made a choice, a free choice not to go. On the other hand, I may not go because even though I want to go, I'm incapable of going. It may be that there are no flights available. It may be that the train has left. And it may be that I've lent out my car and I cannot drive out there in the time allotted. And so it's not a case of not wanting to go. It's a case of being incapable of going. So Paul makes a statement here. He says, there is no one righteous, no not one, no one seeks for God. And the question is, why do we not seek for God? Because we're included in that no one. Why is that? Is it because we refuse to seek after God, or is it because we are incapable of seeking after God? That's the question. Is the question a matter of freedom or bondage of the will? Now, this has been an ongoing debate in the history of the church right on down to the centuries. And I want you to reserve judgment until we actually take a look and see what the Scripture actually says about this very important subject. The Bible is very clear. No one seeks God. None of us. The question is why. The question is why. Down through the church history, as I said, there have been many debates about this. Uh, the first, and one of the most famous debates about this subject of the freedom or the bondage of the will, took place between two great titans. One was by a man by the name of Pelagius. He was a British monk. When I say British, he was from the British Isles, not from modern-day Great Britain, but from the British Isles. He lived from 360 to 420. And he debated one of the greatest thinkers of all time, and that is Augustine of Hippo. There were a number of St. Augustines. This was the most famous North African theologian, Augustine of Hippo, 354 to 430. Now, what Pelagius argued was that we have freedom of the will. We can choose God or not choose God. So, if I don't go to the Super Bowl, it's because I have freely chosen not to go. Pelagius argued not so much for what we would call original sin. 
Now, if you were here last night for the Wednesday service, you heard me talk a little bit about original sin, being OS positive. We're going to come back to that concept in just a moment. But what is interesting is Pelagius really didn't argue for original sin in the sense of something that was passed on from one generation to the next. What he really talked about was the sin of origin. When Adam fell in Eden, that was the first sin. It was the original sin in that respect, the first, the prototype of sin, if you will. But he went on to argue that Adam's transgression only affected Adam. In other words, when Adam fell, that affected Adam. When Eve fell, that affected Eve. But that didn't affect anybody else. It didn't affect their children necessarily. So those born after Adam, Pelagius said, are in precisely the same place that Adam was prior to his fall. We're in a neutral place, just like Adam was before the fall. He was capable of sinning, but he was capable of not sinning. And the argument that Pelagius makes is that we're in precisely the same place. So there was a sin of origin, which sin came into the world, but it didn't affect everybody, it just affected Adam. And he says, therefore, today, human beings are able to live free from sin if they choose. Doesn't everybody have a choice? You can either live a holy life or not live a holy life. You can be obedient to God or you can not be obedient to God. Everybody has a choice. That's what Pelagius said. Freedom of the will. Now, he was up against, as I said, one of the great thinkers of all time, not just of Christianity, but of all time, that great North African theologian, Augustine of Hippo. Now, how did Augustine argue? Because obviously, these two were at odds with each other. What did Augustine say? Augustine said that the sin of Adam, the original sin, did not just affect Adam alone. It affected Everybody who came after Adam. Adam was the fountainhead, if you will, of the human race. And what Adam did affected everybody else that came after him. The, the picture would be this. It's, it's the picture of mountain climbers going up a mountain. And they're all tethered together. And there's a lead mountain climber. And he's up there at the head of the, the line. And everybody's tethered together. And he's pulling each other up. They're pulling each other up. But what happens if the lead man loses his grip and falls, and he pulls everybody else down after him. That is what Augustine argued happened with Adam. That Adam did sin, it was the first sin, it was the sin of origin, but it was a sin that not only affected Adam, it affected everybody who came after Adam, all of Adam's children. Now that's clearly at odds with what Pelagius was saying. But Augustine was able to back it up with biblical support. So keep your finger there in Romans for just a moment and turn to 1 Corinthians. This is one of those great passages that is read almost every Easter. First Corinthians chapter 15 verses 21 and 22. Paul makes this extraordinary statement. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. This is one of the reasons why the church refers to Jesus as the new Adam. It's because what Augustine is saying is that when Adam fell, he brought ruin upon the race. And his decision and his act affected all the rest. But the good news is that there is a new Adam who has come, and his decision and his acts are likewise going to have an effect upon the whole race, potentially. And that new Adam is Jesus Christ. So let me try to spell this out for you just a little bit. This is what theologians sometimes refer to as federal theology. All right, federal theology. Now, as Americans, we understand a little bit about this. We understand how a federal government works. The decisions of others affect you. So, if Congress, the Senate, the House, or the President decide to open up the oil reserves, let's, let's, let's get real serious here. All right, or, or, or they allow for fracking on federal lands. Well, I'm not going to get into that. I'm just asking the question, will that affect your life? It will certainly affect mine. I went and filled up my car the other day. It cost me $85. So the point is what? The decisions of others will affect you. They're your elected officials, and the decisions that they make will inevitably affect you. If Congress decides to raise taxes, is that going to affect you? Yes. If they lower taxes, will that affect you? Yes. In other words, the decisions of others affect you, for better or for worse. Well, the argument is that Adam was our representative. When God created Adam, he made him in his image. Now, it's interesting. That term, Adam, Adam means two things. It can be a proper name, the name of somebody, Adam. I went to school with a young man by the name of Adam Beck. But that word Adam actually means mankind. Adam. It means humanity. So that first man was the representative of all mankind. He was the perfect man. But because he was the representative man, just like your congressmen, your senators, or your representatives and the choices they make affect you, so because Adam was our representative, when he fell, the consequences of his fall affected all of his descendants. Now, we know how this sometimes works, even as parents. If you've got a mother, for example, who is addicted to drugs, and she shoots up with needles, it may be, unfortunately, that her children, her child in utero, in the womb, may be affected with a terrible disease or have all kinds. We talk about, you know, infants who have, you know, a problem with alcoholism because the mother was an alcoholic. We understand that the decision of the mother does have the potential to affect the children. Is that not right? Yeah. Absolutely. That's the argument that Augustine makes. That Adam's decision did not just affect Adam because Adam was our representative. Adam's decision affected us all. So here's how he describes Adam. He uses a number of Latin terms, but I think you'll find them helpful. He says that Adam 
mankind prior to the fall, that is before they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were not to eat, prior to that they were passe pacare. Now what that means in Latin is they were able to sin. They were capable of sinning, but they hadn't. They were passe pacare. They were able to sin. Why? Because God had made them with free will. They were made in the image of God. They were free as God is free. But after they ate of the tree, they became non posse, non picare, not able not to sin. Non posse, that should say non posse, non picare, excuse me up there. So, non posse, non picare. They became not able not to sin. Prior to the fall, they were able to sin, but after they sinned, they were not able not to do it. Now, you and I know this from our own lives. How many of you can relate to Paul's statement, the very things I want to do, I do not do, and the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing? Anybody relate to that? I think every single one of us. I think we all have. Is there anybody out there in the room today that does not have regrets? And one of the reasons we have regrets is because there are many things that we want to do that we do not do, and many things that we do that we wish we hadn't. Augustine said, man, prior to the fall, was able to sin, but hadn't. But after the fall, well, not able not to sin. Non posse, non pecare. But then he goes on to say, because of Jesus Christ, who is the new Adam, who comes into our lives and takes possession of us by the power of the Holy Spirit and takes up residence in our heart because his nature begins to drive out our old nature, we become passe non pecari, able not to sin. Doesn't mean that we won't. It just means that we are now capable of doing what we were not capable of doing before. Why? Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Are you tracking with me? One day, in glory, when we are with the Lord, when we have been transformed, our lowly bodies into one like his heavenly body, then we will be non posse pecari, not able to sin. Because we will be like Christ. But in the meantime, we are in one of two places. There are four categories up there, but we're in one of two of them. We are either non posse, non pecari, not able not to sin because we are in Adam. We are his descendants. He passed on to us his disease. Or we have been regenerate by Jesus Christ and we are able not to sin. doesn't mean that we won't. It just means that we are now capable of not sinning. So in one of two places. But Augustine's whole point is this. None of us, by virtue of our birth, regardless of what Pelagius says, is in a neutral position. None of us is truly free. The will is bound. And that's why Augustine said it has to be of grace. 
What is grace? It is God's undeserved, unearned favor. That's why also, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. We've talked about this passage before. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive. So that's how the debate in the church started off. Between these two great titans, Pelagius and St. Augustine. Now, Augustine won the day, and the church validated his position, and things went along with that. But, you know, it, it is hard for people to admit that there are some things they cannot do. It is hard for us to admit that we're bound, that we're in, enslaved to sin. We, we have a hard time accepting that. And so, at various points throughout the history of the church, the debate has been reignited. And that was certainly the case during the time of the Middle Ages. There were two great debates that took place at the time of the Middle Ages or at the time of the Reformation. One was between Erasmus of Rotterdam, a well-known humanist theologian, and Martin Luther. You've all heard the name of Martin Luther, of course, the great Protestant reformer who nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral and sparked the whole thing. And the other debate, which took place just a generation later, was between John Calvin, who I'm sure you're also aware of, and a man by the name of Jacob Arminius. Now, for our purposes today, I want to focus on the Erasmus-Luther debate, because actually it's the more interesting of the two. And basically what happened was Erasmus, who was sympathetic, he was actually sympathetic to the Reformation. He, he realized that the church, the medieval church, was in grave need, desperate need, of reform. But he was under tremendous pressure from others not to go too far. He actually liked some of the things that Luther was saying. He was sympathetic, but he was not willing to make a clean break with the church. He was not willing to undergo what could possibly be excommunication, which was what Luther at this point was in danger of. And so he was under tremendous pressure to distance himself somewhat from Luther. And so he wrote an article on the freedom of the will, in which he basically adopted the same position as Pelagius. Now, his hope was because he approached it in, in, in a generous and moderate way that Martin Luther would be generous and moderate in return. And Luther was anything but moderate. <laughs> he struck back, and he struck back in a powerful way. He wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. And in that classic book, what Luther basically said is, it is simply not true. The will is bound. There is no aspect of our human life that remains untouched, unaffected by the disastrous effects of sin. Now, Luther might be willing to say that we have free will on the simple things, the things that are really unimportant in the vast scheme of things. In other words, you may have free will to decide what you're going to eat today. You may have free will to decide what you're going to put on today, whether you're going to wear a blue coat or you're going to wear a black coat or whatever it may be. You may have freedom in those matters, but when it comes to the big matters, the spiritual matters, we have no freedom whatsoever. We are completely bound. There's no one who seeks God. Paul got it right. 
And that's because we're incapable of seeking God. Now that's what Luther argued. Free will in small things, but certainly not in the things of eternal significance, the things that really matter. Now, as you all know, that would become a great argument within the church, and it would continue right on down through to the present day. But I think one of the most helpful people when it comes to this notion of the debate between bondage of the will and free will was an American theologian, actually the only great theologian America has ever produced. We produce some great pastors, we produce some great preachers, we produce some great teachers. We have not really, as Americans, produced any great theologians. Now, the Germans have produced great theologians, the English have produced some theologians, the French have certainly produced some theologians, the Eastern Church has produced some theologians, but Americans, we've only really produced one, one truly great one, and that is Jonathan Edwards, the New England divine, 1703 to 1758. And he wrote a book, the title of which is almost as long as the work itself. A careful and strict inquiry into the prevailing notions of the freedom of the will. Now that's a book that you're going to pull off the shelf at Barnes and Noble and take home, aren't you? A careful and strict inquiry into the prevailing notions of the freedom of the will. And what Edwards did that no one else had really done is he defined the terms. Everybody was talking about freedom of the will, bondage of the will, and so forth, but nobody had ever determined or defined what we mean by the will. What exactly is the will? What part of it? If I talk about the brain, you know what the brain is. If I talk about the heart, you know what the heart is, but what exactly is the will? And what he argued is, most people think the will is that thing which chooses what you like or what you don't like, what you prefer, what you don't prefer. But he said that's not actually the case. The will is not the driving factor here. He said it is the mind that is the driving factor. And the will is determined by the mind. Whatever the mind wants or desires, the will will just follow along. Now, he uses a great illustration of this. Try and imagine a lion, for example. If you're a zookeeper and you've got a lion in, in the cage, in the den, and you decide, you know, everybody's on a budget these days, the zoo is on a budget, they have to cut back somewhere, and so they have been feeding this lion meat. But you decide you're going to cut back and you're going to feed the lion the same thing that you're feeding the water buffalo. You're going to feed him wheats and oats. And so you go carefully up there to the slot and you slide the wheat and the oats in there to the lion's den <coughs> and you wait for him to eat. Is the lion going to eat the wheats and the oats? <laughs> Why not? Is he not physically capable of opening his mouth and taking a big gulp of the wheat and the oats? Can he do that physically? Of course, he, he's capable of eating the wheats and the oats, but he won't. In fact, that lion will actually starve rather than eat the wheat and the oats. Why? Because he doesn't like wheat and oats. He hates wheats, wheat and oats. He is a carnivore. 
It is in his what? Nature to eat meat. And so it's not a case where the will is not free. The will is perfectly free. If that lion wanted to, that lion could eat, physically eat, the wheat and the oats, but he's not going to. Because, Edward said, his mind is opposed to it. He says the same thing is true for you and me. We are capable of doing good, but we won't do it. Because we really don't want to. Now, I think Thomas Cranmer summed this up, and I think Cranmer does an even better job in some ways than Edwards in terms of just helping us to understand this. This is what I call Thomas Cranmer's anthropology. He really made a distinction between what I would call free will and free choice. I, I think Luther was right, but not as sharp as he could have been. I think Augustine got it right. We are non posse, non pecari. But Cranmer helps us to understand that distinction between free will and free choice. Cranmer would basically say this, that we all have free choice, but none of us has free will. Now, what we do is we conflate those two ideas. We think free will and free choice are the same thing. Not exactly. Cranmer's saying the same thing that Edwards is saying. What he says is, look, you have free choice, but your choices are going to be determined by something else, by your will. Edwards would say, by your mind. Cranmer would probably say, actually, by your heart. He has this wonderful expression that really, I think, puts a fine point on it. He said, whatever the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Now, isn't that true? Whatever the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. It's the same thing as the lion, but on a whole other level. What does the lion desire? He desires meat. That's what his will is going to choose every single time, because that's what his heart desires. But with human beings, it's even more complex than that. Whatever our heart desires, our will is going to choose, and even if it's contrary to God's law, our mind is going to find a way of justifying it. Making excuses. Now, how many of you can look at that and say, that's true in my own life? <laughs> Anybody out there? Whatever the heart desires, the will chooses, the mind justifies. So the issue is not the bondage of the will. The issue is the heart, isn't it? So we have free choice, but if our heart is corrupt, then that means if our heart is inclined toward evil, inclined toward sin, inclined toward our own selfish desires, then it doesn't matter. The will is going to act freely. We will have free choice, but that will is always going to choose that which is contrary to God. And our mind is going to justify it. Now, are you tracking with me? Are you there with me? You got what I'm talking about? Now, somebody might say, well, this, I've never heard this before. I, I was raised in Episcopalian my whole life. I was raised an Anglican. I never heard this sort of thing before. Well, that may be, but that doesn't mean it hasn't been taught. Article 10 of the 39 Articles, you can look it up in your own prayer book, page 869 says, the condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith. 
and calling upon God. Wherefore, we have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable to God without the grace of God by Christ preventing us. And that's old English. It means being present beforehand to motivate us. That we may have a good will and working with us when we have that good will. You and I, the article says, after Adam, have no power in and of ourselves to help ourselves. None. Because, as in Adam, all die. The Westminster Larger Catechism, which we would say is the Reformed or Presbyterian version, says the same thing. You know, a catechism is a series of questions and answers designed to teach the faith. The question is, wherein consisted the sinfulness of that estate whereunto man fell? In other words, how did man get into his miserable state of being a sinner? The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin. The want of that righteousness wherein he was created and the corruption of his nature whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil and that continually which is commonly called original sin and from which do proceed all actual transgressions. Now, if you were here last night for the Wednesday night service, I talked a little bit about the seven deadly sins. We're doing a series on the seven deadly sins. And I pointed out that when most people think of seven deadly sins or they hear the seven deadly sins, incidentally, the seven deadly sins are never categorized that way in the Bible. When you ask most people, what, what do we mean by seven deadly sins? They say, oh, well, that must be the seven worst. Those are the ones that are deadly. You want to avoid those. I mean, there are a lot of other sins and transgressions and things that we may commit, but, but those are the seven that are big ones. Well, it may come as a surprise to you that murder is not one of the seven deadly sins. No, the seven deadly sins are what we call the fountain sins. They are the sins from which all the others flow. The reason why murder is not one of the seven deadly sins is not because murder is not a grievous sin. It's because murder is not the original sin. Envy is. Wrath is. It's when you're envious of another person. It's when you're wrathful toward another person that if you nurse that long enough, it ultimately produces another kind of sin, which is murder. Nobody goes out and kills somebody just for the sake of killing them unless they're a madman. There's normally some motivation. That's why in law, they're always looking for what? A motive. These are the sins of motivation. But I pointed out that they're not just the only deadly ones. Every sin is deadly. That's why I talked about what is the real nature of sin. When the Bible talks about sin, it's not talking about those individual acts, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, the murder, the adultery, all of that. The Bible, when it talks about sin, is talking about a condition. It is a disease. Last night I compared it to coronavirus. How do you know you need to go get tested? You begin to experience symptoms, don't you? It may be a, a fever. It may be something that's upper respiratory. It, it may be a hacking cough. Whatever it is, when you begin to have that and you share that with a loved one, what do they say? Well, you better go get tested. Now, the doctor can treat the symptoms, but if he only treats the symptoms, is the illness going to go away? 
it's going to continue to come back. If you've been diagnosed with a form of cancer, the doctor can treat some of the symptoms that you're experiencing. But unless he destroys the disease, you're going to perish. So all of these individual things that we talk about as sins, plural, those are merely the symptoms of the disease. And the question is, how did we get the disease? How, how did I catch this? You catch coronavirus from being around other people. How did we get sin, which manifests itself in all these things that we do? How did we get the disease? Original sin, Adam. It was passed on to us by our forefather. And it's been passed right on down to the present day. Every single one of us has it. Let me show you how dramatic this really is. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn to Psalm 51. Now, if you know your background to Psalm 51, you know that Psalm 51 is a confession of sin by King David. David, who was a man after God's own heart, was nevertheless imperfect. And you know that David went out and had an adulterous affair with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And then he was fearful that he was going to be found out. I like to say that in those days, royal families, even then, were concerned about scandal. So, you know, Prince Andrew was not the only one. Um, but this was a problem, and so King David was worried about this, so he compounded the sin of adultery by having Bathsheba's husband killed. Now, he thought that he had swept the whole thing under the carpet. Nobody knew about it. But there is one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. God had seen, even though no one else had. And God sent a prophet to go and confront King David. And that is exactly what happened. Uh, you may notice that if you're reading from the English Standard Version, the study Bible, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So Nathan the prophet comes and he confronts David. It's a very dramatic scene because he knows, Nathan, that he's dealing with a very powerful man. This is the king. Kings in those days were not elected officials. They were not constitutional monarchs. They were absolute rulers. So Nathan wants to be careful about how he does this. He's going to come gently at first. And he says, your majesty, we've got a problem in the kingdom. A great injustice has taken place. And I need your advice as to what we should do about it. And king says, well, all right, tell me what's going on. Well, there is this poor man in your kingdom. He really has nothing. He lives in abject poverty. The only thing that he has that is of any value, and it's very precious to him, is that he has this little lamb. Somebody want to get that? I don't know who's phone's going off, but somebody's phone? That's not for whom the bell tolls. <laughs> but what happens is, he says, we got this, this poor man, he lives in abject poverty. And the only thing that he has of value is a little lamb, a little ewe lamb. And he, and he cares for it. He said it, it, it's precious to him. It's his support animal. You know, we have these support animals. Well, that was his support animal. He said he, he treats it like a child. It, it eats from his table. 
And the king saying, oh, yeah, that's wonderful. I was a shepherd once, too. Yeah, that's lovely. That's, that's great. And he said, but there was this wealthy neighbor. And this wealthy neighbor who had flocks and herds of his own had friends that were coming, and he wanted to throw a feast. And instead of taking one of his own lambs, he went out and stole that poor man's little ewe and took it and killed it and slaughtered it and fed it to his friends as a feast. What should be done about this? David was irate. He tore his clothes. He said, whoever that man is, he deserves to die. At which point, Nathan sees the opportunity. He said, your majesty, that man is you. You're the man that did that. And Nathan hit the mark. David was cut to the quick. He realized it. And Psalm 51 is his confession of sin. It's a marvelous, wonderful confession of sin. It shows how terrible sin really is and what it means to be truly sorry. But I want you to notice one particular part of it. Turn to Psalm 51. Let me just go ahead and read through, and I'll tell you the part that is important. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, there was some truth in that, but it wasn't entirely true. He had also sinned against Bathsheba, hadn't he? And her husband Uriah. He'd also sinned against the kingdom, but he ultimately realized that all sin is against God. He'd broken God's commandments, and if he hadn't broken God's commandments, none of this would have happened. So against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You have every right to judge me, O Lord. And then he goes on to say this, For behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see what David is saying there? He's saying, I'm not a sinner because I did these things. I sinned because I'm a sinner. I was born that way. I was born corrupt. I was born with this disease, and it has manifested itself in my life in these terrible ways. And what's more, he says, there is nothing I can do about it. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. That's a very interesting expression, hyssop. On the Day of Atonement, every year, the priest would take the blood of the lambs and dip them in a hyssop branch or tip a hyssop branch in the blood and then sprinkle the people with it. So what he's basically saying is, I deserve to die. That's the wages of sin. It's death. I deserve to die. My only hope is to be purged with blood. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And here it comes. Create in me a clean heart, O God. For whatever the heart desires, the will chooses, 
And the mind justifies. So the problem is, what do I need? I need a new heart. I need a heart transplant. Create in me a clean heart, our God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will treat transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. We know those words. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. My friends, that is the only way. David acknowledges it. He's, he's born this way. The very things he wants to do, he does not do. The very things he hates, these are the things he finds himself doing. His will was bound. His heart desired Bathsheba. His will chose her. And then his mind justified all the evil acts that he did afterward. And the same is true for us. When somebody calls you out and you know you're guilty, you know you've done something you shouldn't do, how many of you, the first thing you say is, yeah, you're right. Most of us, we may get to that point eventually, but most of us, will try to explain why we did what we did. We will try at least to say there were extenuating circumstances. We will try to justify our actions. How many of you know how this works? Be honest. Let's see a show of hands. We know how this works, don't we? And that's been the case right on down through the centuries. The will is bound. Choices may be free, but the choices are always determined by what the heart desires. And if the heart is corrupt, if the heart has been conceived in sin, then the choices we make will always be sinful. Which means the only way for us to be saved is if God acts on our behalf. We cannot choose Him because the choices we make are what? Choices for the exact opposite. Now go back to Romans chapter 3 for just a minute, and you'll begin to understand why Paul says what he does in verses 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being can be justified in thy sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human effort, no attempt to keep the law can be done. If I were to bring burnt offerings, it would not be enough, because what I need is a new heart. Now, as I said, Paul gives us some bad news. We thought we were bad. Now we realize we're worse off than we thought. Completely bound. Incapable of doing anything unless God first acts. Now this raises 
the inevitable question. Doesn't this undercut the impetus for evangelism? If our will is bound and we are incapable of choosing God, God has to act on our behalf. He has to act in grace. He has to make us alive because we are dead and dead people can't respond. What's the point of evangelism? How many of you have ever wondered that question? What's the point of evangelism? What's the point of going out and sharing the gospel with anybody if they're incapable, like the lion, of eating the gospel, of consuming the good news? What's the point? Well, I'll say a couple of things about that. First thing I'll say is this. You need to remember that the same person who said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men. Who said that? Those are his last words to his disciples prior to his ascension. We call them the Great Commission. The job of every single believer, not just Peter and Andrew, James and John, Paul and the apostles. It is the responsibility of every single Christian to do what? Preach the gospel and make disciples of all men and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Bring them into the fellowship of the faithful. The same Jesus who said, go and do that, also said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Why does the Father have to draw us? Because our will is bound. We are incapable of choosing God. Unless He acts to draw us, we would never come to Him. This is why C.H. Spurgeon said, I know God chose me because in my heart I know I would never have chosen Him. Now this seems confusing, but it's a bit of a mystery. Here's the second thing I'll say to you. It's only a work of God that can make the dead alive again. And that's why we're commanded to preach. Because when we preach, what are we proclaiming? The wisdom of men? The words of men? It's the word of God. And so if somebody's going to be made alive again, it has to be by God. How did God call all things into existence? By the sheer power of his word. Where there was nothing, there was something. God said, let there be light, and there was light. It is by the preaching of the word that God regenerates people who are dead in their trespasses and in their sins. And the other thing that always goes along with good preaching is prayer. You pray for somebody. Why? Because you know that God has to act. He has to bless the preaching. He has to bless the hearing of the word. And if God doesn't bless the preaching and he doesn't bless the hearing... Let me tell you something, nothing is going to happen. The same God who appoints the ends appoints the means. Now when somebody says, well, I don't like that. <laughs> I, I, I don't like that, that makes me feel uncomfortable. I, I, I want to have free will. Well, all I can say is tell that to the Apostle Paul. Because let me tell you something, Paul did not go of his own free accord into the kingdom of God. Now, C.S. Lewis described himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. Isn't that right, Brian? Well, the Apostle Paul was the most reluctant convert in ancient Palestine. Turn to Acts chapter 26. Bear in mind that Paul told the story, or the book of Acts tells the story of Paul's conversion, about four times. 
Now, when you hear the story four times, that means it's important. But every time that the story is told, the details are a little more exciting. And to me, this is one of the most exciting stories. Paul, at this point, is, it, is imprisoned. Um, he's been arrested. Uh, he's being held under house arrest. He'd been arrested in Jerusalem. He had been taken to Caesarea Maritima. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land, you've actually been with me to the very site where this took place. Paul was on trial before the Emperor Felix. Somebody asked me recently, when are we going to the Holy Land again? Start saving your shekels a year from now. That's the plan. So in the spring of 2023, that's when we're planning to make a trip to the Holy Land. Okay? So you'll have an opportunity, God willing, if we all live that long, the Lord doesn't return and Putin behaves himself, we'll all have an opportunity to go and be on site where this took place. Paul is arrested. He's standing trial before the Roman governor and before the Jewish king, King Agrippa. And basically, they want to know. The charges have been brought against Paul. What has he done? And Paul tells the story of his conversion. Verse 12 is where we're going to begin. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, that is his own tongue, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, every time the story is told up to this point in the gospel, or excuse me, in the book of Acts, that's where it ends. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But on this particular occasion, Paul gives us a little more detail. Jesus said something else. He says what? Why do you kick against the goads? Now, do you know what a goad was? You've heard about somebody, he just goads me. He just loves to goad me. A goad in the ancient world was a sharpened stake or stick. It was used when you were dealing with livestock. You're trying to get the animals moving, and, and every now and then, you know, one will stop. And so what you do is you went on with a sharpened stick, and you prodded them. You goaded them, and it got them going. But every now and then, you'd get a really stubborn animal that would kick against the goads to his own harm. That's how Paul describes himself and his conversion. God had been prodding him along, God had been goading him along, and Paul was kicking against the goads. But is God satisfied with that? He may have been kicking against the goads, but God is not to be undone. Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise, stand on your feet, for I have prepared to you for this purpose, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I ask you this question. How much choice in the matter did the Apostle Paul have? He may have been kicking against the goads, 
But God said, I don't care if you're kicking against the goats. I have a plan for you, and you are going to fulfill it. So that is the experience of the Apostle Paul. Since I've already mentioned C.S. Lewis, this is how C.S. Lewis described his own conversions in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He said, the odd thing was that before God closed in on me, I love that expression, it's that hound of heaven. God was closing in on me. I was running away. I was kicking against the goads, but God closed in on me. Before God closed in me, on me, I was, in fact, offered what now appears a moment of holy free choice. I was going up Headington Hill on the top of a bus without words and I think almost without images. And a fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out, or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets or even a suit of armor, as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose. Who's doing all the action here? Lewis is doing it. I chose to open. I had what appeared to me to be a moment of free choice. I chose to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. But then he goes on to add this, and I think it is naked honesty. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. Charles Wesley gave words to the same sentiment in his great hymn, And Can It Be?, this was written shortly after his own conversion. And in that hymn, he has this stanza. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Wesley saying, what was my condition before God acted on my behalf? Did I choose him? No, he said, my spirit was imprisoned, fast bound, he says, in fetters, in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening rate. What does that word quickening mean? Life-giving. Every Sunday we say, and we believe in that he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. Who are the quick? They're not the fast. The quick are the alive. The living and the dead. So what he's saying is, I'm imprisoned. My spirit is not free. It's fast bound in sin and nature's night. Those are the only things I choose. Those are the only things that I really want. But then I diffuse a life-giving ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. He doesn't say, as Lewis said, I unbuckled the fetters. No, he says, my chains fell off. My heart was free. Then I rose, went forth, and followed thee. If you are a Christian today, 
If you are a believer today, it is not because you chose him. Like Wesley, you were fast bound in sin and nature's night. That's not to say that somebody didn't present you with an opportunity to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if you chose him, it is because he first chose you. It's because he made you alive even when you were dead. If you're finding your heart strangely warmed by things that you are hearing from the Bible or these classes or the sermons on Sunday, it's because God has decided to work in your life for his glory. And that's when you can say with John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, he found me. I was blind, he gave me sight. I didn't do it for myself. And that's why Paul leaves us with this parting thought in verses 19 and 20. There is no human way, there is no human work that can be done even if we were able to live for God from here on out, we still owe the debt of all the years that have gone before. We are incapable of choosing Him unless He makes us free, unties the fetters, and sets us loose. That's the great message of Romans, And that's why Paul is going to go on to say in the very next verse, ah, we're turning the corner. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul. These are deep things, Lord, and we don't like to see ourselves in this light. But it's only when we do, when we realize that we are completely incapable of doing anything good, at least good in the sense that it's pleasing to you. But you come and you do wash us. You do make us clean. You do give sight to the blind. You do make the lame leap for joy and you do make those who are dead in their trespasses and in their sins alive again. We are non passe, non pecari, not able not to sin. But by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, we become passe, non pecari, able not to sin. And one day, one day in glory, because we belong to you, we shall be made like unto Jesus Christ not able to sin anymore, free at last, free at last, and God Almighty will be free at last. Amen.